Well, at the Neighborhood Church, we are following Jesus together for what? For God's kingdom in our neighborhood. And what we've been doing these last few weeks as we begin our year together is looking at our five core practices. These five core practices are meant to be lived, not just believed. And these five core practices are how we follow Jesus together for God's kingdom in our neighborhood. I love Aaron Stone's icons that he put together for us last year. And where we began our series is our first core practice, which is what? Oh, man. Thank you, Becky. (laughs) Woo! Our second one is to love neighbor. Our third is to? Good. And last week, Pastor Kathy talked about create space. And tonight, we're going to talk about, for the gold star, woo, bringing peace. Our world desperately, desperately needs peace, right? And I don't just mean in like the Miss America theoretical, I wish for world peace, although that is good and true. We don't have to look that far or think that abstractly. We can just look in our own heart. We need some peace in our weeks of stress and anxiety and fear and wonder and ah. We can look in our own relationships when we get stuck in conflict and mired in discord. Or you can just turn on the news and see in our own cities and world how desperately we need peace. This evening, I want to talk about what it means for us to bring peace. Last year when we talked about our core practices, we spoke on some real tangible ways in which we're called to bring God's peace into our own cities and neighborhoods. Tonight, I want to kind of go deeper and talk about how we bear the family resemblance of God when we live peacefully and work to make peace in our own families and cities and world. But I want to begin, because it's February and it is Black History Month, I cannot shake thoughts of the greatest peace movement of our nation's history. And that, of course, is the civil rights movement of the 1960s. It was a peace movement because not just of what they achieved, but how they achieved it. Because of Dr. Martin Luther King and others, they fought peacefully and nonviolently. And one of the most iconic and impactful demonstrations during that movement was the lunch counter sit-in. These lunch counter sit-ins began February 1st, 1960, at a Woolworths in North Carolina. Who knows what a Woolworths is? Do y'all know by experience? I'm told that it's a department store, and not like Walmart with the McDonald's in it today, they would have a diner, and they would have a counter. So the lunch counter sit-ins began February 1st, 1960, when four African-American young college student men walked in, sat down, and politely requested service. But then they were promptly refused service because these lunch counters, whoa, these lunch counters were for white patrons only. And then when they were asked to leave, they didn't. They remained firmly planted, steadfast, peacefully 
in their seats. So then you can imagine in the pot boiler of the American South in the 60s and even there in North Carolina, a crowd begins to gather and you see scenes not unlike this one here on the screen. Then came the taunts and the name calling, the hate, and ultimately even physical assault. Just to back up a little bit, Atlanta is home to the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. And the week leading up to the Super Bowl, another Atlanta-based institution, Coca-Cola, covered the cost of every general admission ticket to this Museum of Civil Rights. Anybody who was visiting for the Super Bowl that was going to be there in Atlanta could go and experience this world-class center. And one of the most powerful exhibits at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights is a lunch counter simulation. So just imagine with me a counter not unlike the one we just saw on the screen, but here in a museum. Guests are invited to sit down at a stool, and then they put on noise-canceling headphones that are piping in surround sound, ambient noise of what it must have been like to be like those young men at that Woolworths counter in February of 1960. And so you hear as you place your hands firmly on the counter and close your eyes, you're immersed in what they would have heard behind them, name calling and taunts and hatred, but they take it a step further. You can feel the chair begin to shake like when they would try to jostle them out of their seats. Then they use air compression cannons to put pressure on your back and to hit your legs, be, like to simulate kicking and grabbing. And all of this lasts 96 seconds. And so when you sit at this exhibit in the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, you're instructed to just see how long you can make it. 96 seconds. These four men sat there longer than 96 seconds. But the guests that walk away from this powerful exhibit basically walk away with one thought. How strong must these young men would have been? How strong they are as these guests almost 60 years later, wipe the tears from their eyes, could not even fathom 96 seconds how strong these men, so young, must have been. And think about it now. What's stronger, okay? To do what some of us might do, and that is to spin around and spit right back. Is that strong? Or maybe you take the old-fashioned recess approach and you turn around and you try to Take a swing. Is that strong? Or you could do the old flip the table, light it up, start a brawl, riot, trash, Woolworths. Then you can imagine headlines and the setback for the movement. Is that the strongest thing to be done? No. What's stronger? Four young men breaking the cycle of violence cutting it off dead in its tracks and saying, I'm not going to return violence for violence. Is that strength? 
or maybe four young men sitting there for longer than 96 seconds hearing the vitriol and the venom and refusing to turn and return hate for hate. Because as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. And then John will say that perfect love can even also cast out fear, fear of the other. I think that this movement was so strong and powerful, not just because of what they ended up accomplishing, and that is hundreds and hundreds of college students all throughout the South sitting at their own lunch counters and demanding that they be seen for who they are. As children of God, as humans worthy of respect and love, but it's not just what they accomplished in, in, in putting the peaceful pressure on a department store to treat them humanely. It's how they accomplished it, right? And how they accomplished this was the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is about peace. And the means are just as important as the end. We believe in our faith that God is bending all evil and pain and brokenness. He is bending it all toward one final end, and that is what we sang about, making all things new. He's not going to waste it. He's going to renew it. He's going to redeem it. He's going to raise us up, body and soul. We will be like Jesus. We will see Jesus as he is. And let me tell you, we will have no need for the wars and the silly spats and nuclear missiles when Jesus kingdom comes in fullness on earth as it is in heaven. And hear me, if you look to the end of Revelation, let me tell you how the story winds up. It's not about us just flying away, oh glory, and going there. It is God's kingdom coming here in fullness and a new heavens and a new earth. But until God's kingdom comes in fullness, we have to live in the kingdom that is already here in the followers of Jesus. Would we surrender to Jesus' way? And the way is the means that if we want to live in the reality of that coming day, we better live the way of that day today. You with me with all that verbal gymnastics? The means, the how matters. Jesus, in what we read earlier in the Beatitudes, says this in Matthew 5, verse 9. Matt's got some teaching handouts that'll help you in the next few moments. If you didn't get one, would you just raise a hand about yay? Matt's going to pass these out. We're going to have some thoughts and some scriptures here in just a moment. But I'll read to you what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 9. He said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. What I want to do in the next few moments is make three quick observations. And as we're moving through that, the second thing I want to do is to give us some call to nonviolent arms for some practical peacemaking in our own relationships. And then the third thing I want to do is leave you with a few passages of Scripture and a story that I think illustrates how central peace is to the good news that Jesus came to declare and demonstrate. So first, three quick observations, and then a few practical notes. We can't even scratch the surface on peace in Jesus' way in the New Testament. But thirdly, I'll leave you with a couple passages that hint at how central peace is to the good news that Jesus is declaring and demonstrating. You with me? 
Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. First, a few observations in the next few moments. This is part of what I said earlier was the Beatitudes. Y'all say Beatitude. Beatitude. I'll tell you, I wish this was true, but it's frankly not. I've heard preachers that love Jesus and love the scriptures say, the Beatitudes are attitudes to be. Oh man, that sounds like an Adam Wood kind of thing. That's a nice little crazy thing that you hope is sticky and they'll remember for more than 30 minutes. These are some being attitudes, yes? No, unfortunately, these nine or so, I didn't even count them, Don't y'all need to count them for me. These people that Jesus are talking about are not how-tos, you hear me? It's not you need to be like this or that or the other. They are rather good news for these kinds of people. Think about this. If this was a list of be likes, Jesus would basically say, okay, I'm Jesus, I'm God's king, and this is the very first kind of words that I'm going to be saying in Matthew's gospel, so y'all ready for it? Come to the mountain just like Israel. Here's a new law. Follow everything that I'm about to say. Be like this and obey all these laws and you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus talks about in Matthew chapters 5 to 7 with the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes being the preamble or the introduction is not a new list of how-tos in a sense. What Jesus is saying is put all your trust in me, then be enveloped in God's kingdom, and as you follow me, this is what we're up to. Are you with me? Do you see the distinction? It's not do this so that... It is, you've trusted me, now this is how it looks. You with me? It's not a list of how-tos. Think about this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Man, well, I'm not spiritually bankrupt or burnt out. I'm kind of rocking and rolling. I'm walking in step with Jesus. I'm walking with the Spirit. I'm praying. I'm feeling good. I see God at work in my life. But he says, be poor in spirit. And I'm rich in spirit. i got to give some of my spirit up. No. Well, I'm laughing and having a good time, but Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Well, crap, i got to stub my toe and cry now. You see how silly it is? So what does Jesus mean? It's not how-tos, it's good news. Good news for the spiritually spent, for the mourning, for the hungering for justice. Good news for all you folks who are experiencing bad news. The kingdom of heaven is for you. Jesus had just said in Matthew chapter 4, turn to me, the kingdom of God is what? At hand. It's near. It's not just then, it's now. And then he showed them when God's in charge, you're healed, you have food, you have this. And then he gathers them up and he says, okay, 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 you ready, you ready? These are called the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is looking these people in the eye with his 12 disciples reconstituting a new tribe of God's people looking the mourning, the poor, the hungry, the fill in the blank, looking them in the eye and saying, guess what, guess what, guess what? Good news. The kingdom's yours. It's right here. Turn to me. It's yours. This is good news. 
Jesus looked at these people in the eye and invited them into this. These are people uniquely oriented to receiving this announcement of God's good kingdom. Second observation. Peace isn't just something that's made. Excuse me. It's, <laughs> whoops. Peace isn't just maintained. Peace has to be made. Jesus said, blessed are the who? The peacemakers. There are people that Jesus was drawing to himself that were the kinds of people who step into the middle of the conflict and they try to make things right. Peace isn't just maintained, it has to be made. And isn't this what Jesus did? Didn't he step into our chaos, step into our brokenness, and instead of killing, he was killed. And instead of persecuting back, he forgave And instead of sacrificing others, he sacrificed himself through sacrificial love. He stepped right into the chaos in order to make peace. Here are some ways I think that peace might be made. And these are kind of big Jesus follower types of rhythms that we need to look at. The first bit is an inner heart attitude. Because you can't go out and give what you don't have, right? You can't go out and love someone if you're filled with hate and brokenness and bitterness toward another person. So the first step in making peace, if it's gotta be made, you've got to understand the one who is the prince of peace, that preaches peace, that shows us peace, and gives us peace. In John chapter 17, he says, my peace I give to you. That may be John 14, Y'all need to fact check me tonight, y'all. He gives us our peace. It starts with the heart attitude. And how we love to say it in our church is you've got to uh, determine to love those people you'll encounter before you ever put a face to the name. Jesus has rezoned our neighborhood. And now everyone we encounter is a neighbor to be loved, not an enemy to be hated. He's rezoned our neighborhood and he says, forgive your enemies, bless those who persecute you, and love all kinds. He's rezoned the neighborhood. You gotta start in your heart because you can't give what you don't have. You with me? And I think this is an interpersonal level. So we start in the heart and then we kind of just take a step to your everyday nitty gritty people you sleep with and in bed and wake up to in the kids in your house and the people in your office and this is like those direct contact kinds of people and I think that it means you've got to keep short accounts short accounts because the thing about the things that make for division and not peace are the kinds of things that can grow and get worse over time and so I like this phrase to keep short accounts. Don't let the debt pile up with bitterness in your heart or an in, uh, inactivity in your relationship. And I love these questions that you might be able to write down if it's not on your handout. These are some conflict questions that we give to couples that are about to get married, couples that have been married for 20 years, and Amy and I even try to tick off our list. The first is, what do I need to own? What is it that I need to own? This is the thing is that we all have parts to play because relationships are two-way streets. This is a great gut-check relational question. What do I need to own, right? I need to stop blaming them. What's my part in this? 
The second question is, what do I need to confess? What do I need to say? What do I need to name? What have I been withholding that I am refusing to give you? Are you the kind of person, you don't have to raise your hand, but are you the kind of person that is the, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, let's go back to five minutes ago, conflict kind of person? Or are you the, I'll see you in eight days when I've gone over here and reevaluated my whole life, and maybe I'll tell you I'm sorry in four years. Now, these are a little bit of an exaggeration, but we all tend to have these conflict and fighting styles. It's a way of protecting ourselves, and it's a way of processing things, but I think that there are some times we need to just say something thoughtfully, especially when we want to withhold something. And then finally, what do I need to let go? Sometimes we expect this person or that person to say just the right thing at just the right time or behave a certain way. And at some times, some points, you just got to say, look, I've got to let go of my expectations of how you should feel or what you should say. That's how we keep those short accounts. What relationships are atrophying or dying on the vine because of unforgiveness. Because your bank account is so loaded down with all this weeks and years of bitterness and frustration. This is why we're invited to make peace. I think the third bit is in sacrificial action. See, there's a misconception that nonviolence, even me saying that, like freaks Texans out. I think there's this misconception that nonviolence equals non resistance. Can you look at those young men that sat at that counter and say, You didn't do anything? And there's another misconception with this other word, y'all ready for it? Pacifism. Ooh, don't say that in Texas. Because the misconception is that pacifism equals passive-ism. That's an Adam thing right there. Y'all with me? These are do-nothing kinds of things. No, no, no. Peacemaking is not just the absence of violence. Peacemaking is to step into the fray, but to bear the family resemblance of God's kingdom then and to try to mirror that and model that in the here and now. So if there is going to be no war and guns and hate and violence and retaliation, you got to make peace the Jesus way, that way then, today. And it requires a sacrificial action. I've heard it said that forgiveness is refusing your right to retaliate. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is refusing your right to retaliate. It's going to cost you something. Here are at least three ways that I think sacrificial action is going to cost you. I just said the second one, which is refuse retaliation. And I want you to, even as I'm speaking, look at those verses there that I've listed. Because a lot of what Jesus 
talks about in peacemaking in Matthew 5, 9, he explores later in the chapter, in Matthew chapter 5. We just talked about resolving conflict in Matthew 5, 23 to 25. You can see it also when Paul picks up the message in Ephesians 4, but also this refusing retaliation. That's a way that's going to cost you. It's a sacrificial love. Look at Romans chapter 12. You're going to see, leave it, leave it. The Lord will sort it out in the end. You've got to refuse your right to retaliate. You can also write in on your little handout or somewhere, 1 Peter chapter 2. When Jesus was hurled insults, if Jesus was sitting at the lunch counter, he didn't return and swing and spit back. This is part and parcel of what you've signed up for. But it hurts and it costs. If it costs Jesus his life, why do you think it should cost you nothing? Oh, but you don't know how she hurt me. You don't know what he did. You don't know what he said. I'm telling you forgiveness is a one-way street. Your heart, your account, you and Jesus, blessing and praying and persecuting. Forgiveness is a one-way street. Reconciliation, that's a whole other ball game. That's a two-way street. Just because they've hurt you, you need to forgive them. But just because they hurt you, it doesn't mean you need to go be best pals tomorrow. I'm being serious. We talk about uh, the 12 steps and recovery quite a bit. The making amends step says, except when to do so would harm them or yourself. At some point, reconciliation might happen. But forgiveness is the birthright of the Christian. We look to Jesus and trust him. When they hurt him enthroned on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But I think if pressed, Jesus would say on some level, these forces knew what they were doing, trying to extinguish the light of the world. So whether they knew it or not, they did hurt you. But forgiveness, resolving conflict, refusing retaliation, and finally releasing hate is the birthright bearing the family resemblance of what it means to make peace even when it costs us. You've heard it said, hate your enemy and love your neighbor. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven which is my third observation of blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called what? Children of God. There is something about loving enemies. There is something about blessing and praying and not retaliating those who want to hurt you that says like father, like son. For while we were yet sinners and enemies, Christ what? came and wiped us off the map. That's not what it says. For while we were sinners and enemies, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, but God loved us and showed his love among us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says he shows his love for us that he gave his only son. John 3.16, 1 John 3.16. It's throughout the New Testament. He not just asks us to love our enemies, he models it. So this is our final focus statement here. Peacemaking. Bringing 
God's shalom reflects God's image. Or I'll say it this way. Peacemaking, bringing God's shalom is our family business. Established year zero, God bringing order out of chaos. When we say yes to Jesus and enter into God's kingdom, we inherit the business. Peacemaking, it has to be made and sometimes it costs us. Bringing God's shalom is our family business. I want to wind down by explaining and exploring that more with our fifth core practice. We say in this church, we commit to partner with God. It's his activity first, so we're partnering and joining with the family business in his mission to bring his shalom, and in parentheses, holistic peace and well-being to our neighborhood and our world. When we say that word shalom, it's a Hebrew word, which is what the Old Testament is written in. It is a Hebrew word for peace. And bringing peace is God's work that he shares with his people to look. Restore balance where there is imbalance. If you were to go back through the Old Testament and find all the places in which shalom is there, there will be some iteration of everything is made right again. Doesn't that make you feel at peace when you finally fit every last dish into the dishwasher? Shalom. Think of that on a global scale. (laughs) Or think of it in your own relationships of being an instrument of peace like what we prayed for earlier, right? Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me go and restore balance and sow love. There is a shortage of love, let me sow love there. Where there is injury, pardon. Let me restore the brokenness and the balance there and restore pardon, where there's doubt, faith. Do you see the return to balance? This is what we're invited into. And who said Christianity is boring? It's an adventure, and it's messy, and it's hard, but it's not just all up to you. We join the work that he's already doing. That's some relational peacemaking. Finally, we see in the restoration and the reconciliation, like the sit-in, like, how about this, every time there's an imbalance with 80 kids that we saw just a few months ago that did not have a coat and has one because we had a little piece of the puzzle restoring a little bit of balance. How about the uniforms before that so that they could go in confidently at school with new pants, without the holes, without the high waters, a little bit of balance in the favor of what it looks like when God's kingdom, not just then, but now. It's not just theoretical. It starts here in our hearts, in our interpersonal relationships, as we restore balance where there was imbalance. We say our core convictions in our church inform our practices. I just want to read briefly this core conviction. This is on our website. This is kind of the air you're breathing. We're an Anabaptist-flavored church. And this here is one of our core convictions. Peace is at the heart of the gospel. As followers of Jesus in a divided and violent world, we are committed to finding nonviolent alternatives and to learning how to make peace between individuals and within and among churches, in society, and between nations. 
It starts within, it moves its way out. But the means today must look like God's end. But I love that phrase, peace is at the heart of the gospel. I've listed there on your handout two passages I want to leave you with, and I want to give you a story or an illustration to tie in our whole family business. Then we'll celebrate a baptism. Sound good? I want to read in full sweeping passages why and how peace is at the heart of the gospel. Peace with others in the first bit, and then peace with God in the second bit. Then a story and a baptism. Sound good? Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. Paul is tripping and freaking out because God has taken these two enemy people groups and made them one. Here's how. For he himself is our peace. So Jesus is peace who made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside or boiling it down, whittling it down in his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. Jesus' purpose in doing this was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So Jesus is peace, he makes peace. And in one body of people to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Now enemies and others are brothers and sisters. This is gospel at the heart of it. He came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. And through him, we both have access now to the Father by one spirit. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 20. That's for God's people. Now it's going to extend out to the world. And he says, for Christ's love compels us, energizes us, sends us out. Because we were convinced that one died for all. So therefore, all died. Chew on that. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. He keeps going. So from now on, listen, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. I don't care if you're enemy, where you're from, what orientation or race or religion. We don't regard anybody from these silly walls that divide us. Christ broke them down. And we once regarded Christ in this way, but we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, right? That day has become this day. The old is gone and the new is here. And he says this. All this is from God. It's his idea. Who reconciled us to himself. So God's made peace with us through Christ. And then watch. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God somehow was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has then committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God himself were making his appeal through us, our actions, our voices, our love. We implore you on Christ's behalf, what? Be reconciled to God. I want you to hear this as we bring it down. You weren't made to be a bucket to receive 
and receive only. You were made to be a river extending out through you the reconciliation and peace and blessing of God in your family, in your heart, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. Live it. It's yours. God is working in you and through you. You don't have to do it alone. So we're given this message to be reconciled to God. He's made peace with humanity. Our job is to go out and wake them up to it and invite them into it. It's part of the family business. I'll close with this. Recently I heard a parable about a Russian priest. This is a story. I don't think it actually happened. But every Friday morning, they tell of a Russian priest who for several hours would just disappear. I guess it was his day off. And he would leave this village in Russia where he pastored. So his devoted disciples who were sipping coffee in the village, they would boast that during those hours, their priest goes up to heaven and he talks to God. Now y'all got to know that on my day off, I fold laundry and watch Wayne's World. I try to talk to God, but I haven't been to heaven, so to speak. But they are talking about how this priest goes to heaven and he just chats with God. Well, a stranger moves into town, and he's skeptical about all this, so he decides to go and do some detective work. So when Friday morning comes, he hides and he watches, spying the priest's house, and he sees the priest getting up in the morning. The priest says his prayers, and then he dresses in peasant clothes. He grabs an axe. This priest goes off into the woods, and then he starts cutting firewood. Y'all know I don't cut firewood on my day off either. But then he wraps it up and he hauls it back just to the outskirts of the village to a little shack where an old woman and her sick son lives. So the priest leaves them a week's worth of wood, knocks on the door, then he sits down with them and sips a cup of tea. He sees them bow their heads and he prays and asks God's blessing over them. And he sneaks back to his house. So having observed the priest's actions, the newcomer decides to stay on in the village. And eventually, he becomes himself a disciple of this priest. So the story goes that whenever he hears one of the villagers say, Oh, on Friday morning, our priest ascends all the way to heaven. The newcomer quietly whispers, and then he brings heaven down to earth. When we bring peace, we're partnering with God to bring a little bit of heaven into earth because that's our family business. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you have made peace, that you do not count our sins against us because if there is anyone in Christ, the new creation has come and there is no more condemnation. Lord, would we be so in touch with that peace that we would go and be a channel of peace to others in our neighborhood. So Lord, we just ask your blessings on us. We ask your blessing on our new brother Andrew in just a few moments as we welcome him into this adventure of bringing more and more of God's shalom into this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Lynette, would you bless us as we receive our benediction? May God's spirit surround you.
and those who love you. Rest now in that calm embrace. Let your hearts be warmed and all storms be stilled by the whisper of his voice. Mm-hmm.